Well, please turn with me now in the Bible to Luke chapter 16. We're taking on another one of our Lord's parables in Luke's gospel. And today we're taking on the rich man and Lazarus. Now, last time we were together, we took on a parable that had at its theme how we view and use money. And we considered last time, what could be more practical and relevant than that? Because money is a big part of our lives. And in fact, in fact, few things are as spiritual as how we view and use money. So we saw that. Now we come to this topic. Listen, it's the topic of death and what comes next. And I would say to you, what could be more relevant than this? Death is an ever-present reality in our living on this earth. Did you know that worldwide, there are over 60 million deaths every year? That comes out to be 166,000 deaths every day worldwide. That's 115 people dying every minute on the earth. Can you imagine that? While we're worshiping during this hour together, 6,928 people will die during this hour around the world. And then the next hour, another 6,900 people. Right here in America, how many people are dying this hour? 341 people, just in the time we're gathered here for worship, 341 people will die here in this country. And then in the next hour, another 341. It'll be 8,200 today in our country that will pass away. What I want you to think now with me, and I want you to feel the uncomfortableness of this, that you are included in those numbers. When we talk about human mortality, the mortality rate is 100%. This is not like a weather forecast. I checked the weather before coming to church this morning, and I saw there's a 20% chance of rain during certain hours and 80% chance of rain for other hours. Uh, this isn't like that. Like, you know what? There's a, there's a chance I might die. No, it's an absolute certainty. It's a 100% reality. You were born and you will one day die. It is a reality. The question comes, what comes next? But again, let's don't go past this. I want you to think about it. There, There's coming a day when you will die yourself. There's coming a day when your lungs will no longer inhale and exhale. It's coming a day when you and your physical body, your heart one day will stop beating. And when that happens, sometime after that, somebody's going to examine you and they're going to write a certificate of death with your name on it. Your family and friends will receive that news and they'll begin to process it and they'll begin to plan some type of memorial service for you. But here's the question, what comes next for you after your physical death? The Pew Research Group a few years ago did a survey and they found that 72% of Americans believe in heaven defined as a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. So people typically believe in a heaven. And then they found that 58% of Americans, they believed also in hell defined as a place where people who have led bad lives and die without being sorry are eternally punished. That's how they defined it. We're told that 8% of Americans are atheists, so they believe nothing comes next. But of course, you and I don't go to the surveys to figure out what we believe. Our burning question is, when it comes to issues of life and death and everything else, what has God said? What has he revealed for us in the scriptures? And aren't you glad God has spoken to this a lot? Here in Luke 16 today, Jesus is going to teach us that there is most certainly life after physical death for us. 
And Jesus is going to make very clear there are two distinct destinations. So Jesus begins this parable by telling us about two men who have very different lives. And we're going to read that in just a second. But first of all, let's take on the question, hey, is this a parable? There have been some through the years that said, well, I don't think this one's a parable. Uh, these, were, these were actual people. And the reason some have said that is because Jesus names one of the people in this parable. So we have the rich man and Lazarus. This is the only parable where Jesus actually gives a name to one of the characters. So even with that unique fact here, I do believe this is a parable because Jesus starts this parable like he does so many of the other ones. If you'll notice with me, the parable we saw last time, Luke 16, 1 starts this way. There was a rich man. And a lot of the other parables, there was a man, there was a man. And the last week, there was a rich man. And then he starts here in verse 19, there was a rich man. So he's letting you know this is another parable. But here's the point with parables. They're still teaching spiritual truths. There's so much that's literal, even in what he's communicating to us, which we're going to see very clearly here. I love the parables, though, because these are so memorable. So some of you are going to hear this parable for the, for the very first time in your life, and you're never going to shake this one. It's going to stick in your mind. Some of you have heard this before, and you're going to hear it again, but it's such a compelling parable, so vivid as our Lord wants us to consider these eternal truths. So with that, let's dive in. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, and who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus begins by describing a rich man and a poor man in this life. And their lives couldn't be more different one of the men was rich, and because of that, he was carefree. The other was poor and crippled and deprived. The rich man, as we'll see, had everything. Jesus described him as being clothed in purple and fine linen. These are the clothes of royalty. Only the rich could have afforded these purple-colored dyes and have clothes like that. So he had a luxurious life, Jesus is telling us. The ESV translation says, he feasted sumptuously every day. New American Standard Bible says he was joyously living in splendor every day. Just luxury. This guy had everything. And he had a nice home, even told here. He had a gate there around his courtyard. Had everything, except he did not have a relationship with God. That's going to be very clear here in a moment. But there is this poor man, and he is indeed named here, the name Lazarus. That name means he whom God has helped. This was a believing man. He was a believing poor man. It indicates here for us that he was crippled. He was laid at the rich man's gate daily. We're told here he was covered in sores and he was so hungry. We're told who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And then we're told here that stray dogs were licking his sores. Isn't it? Dogs actually do that, don't they? I remember as a boy, you get a little cut on your knee and if any dogs around, they're going for it. Like, get away from me. But I don't want you to picture when you think about that, your nice little purebred dog or your beautiful rescue. <laughs> These are mangy stray dogs that would come along and lick the sores of this man, just adding disgrace to his suffering. But notice this, Jesus is making the point that the rich man did nothing for him. Here's this poor man looking through the gate, seeing this this lavish, extravagant life of the rich man. He's longing just for something. And 
Nothing ever came out of the gate for Lazarus. No compassion, not a single time from the rich man. Did nothing. And it's just an indicator. This man had no faith in God. It's how Jesus is painting that picture. You know, many people who serve around the world for the gospel, they deal with this type of poverty on a regular basis. For people who serve in India, in places like Bangladesh, it's not the occasional panhandler, it's, it's throughout the day. So here in Richmond, we see somebody standing at a street corner panhandling, looking for money. There's always that sign behind them or frequently, don't give to them. <laughs> it's not safe for them or you, you know, give to a, a good charity. And so sometimes we might feel led to give, sometimes not, but we don't have to face that as a regular part of life typically. But if you served in India or in Bangladesh and places like that, you're going to see dozens of beggars every day, maybe even hundreds as you move about one of these cities. And so people serving over there have to really deal with it. What, how are we going to handle this? We can't possibly give to every beggar we're going to see uh, because there are scams here. Some of these children are trafficked. They're put out there. Some of these children are maimed on purpose to make them look more pitiful, to get more. And then some adult is going to take the money from them. And so... Our, our people serving overseas, like they have to wrestle with, how, how do we help? But, but not helping is not an option. You have a heart of compassion that God has given you. How do we do? When do we do it? And they have to face that. And so they get thoughtful. Here, here's what some families do. They thought, I don't, I don't want to give money to that child for just some adult to take. They might even be related to them. I don't want to give them packaged food because somebody might take that from them and sell it for money for themselves. So what some of our people will do, they'll carry in their car, you know, baggies of cookies that they've kind of put in these little Ziploc baggies or some, some other food, maybe bananas or something, bottles of water, so that when they come to these intersections and, and all these beggars coming around the car, they'll have something to give that hopefully that child or that elderly person will be able to eat themselves in that moment. But again, they have to be thoughtful. I, I think about one of the scarier moments for me overseas, I was traveling and visiting with some of our personnel in Northern India. And as I remember, we were in a park at dusk, it's getting dark, and, and one of the people in my group gave something to a beggar. A wonderful moment, just kind of normal. And uh, that was great. And then moving on, but then word spread pretty rapidly. And in that darkened park, we noticed then at least a dozen adults now running in our direction and it became unsafe fast. And so we're actually fleeing uh, from the situation. So again, these are the types of things that people are facing, but, but with a heart, we, we want to help in ways that are helpful, ways that are safe. But, but here we come back to this rich man, as Jesus tells it, every day there's a beggar that he knew by name, as we're going to see, right outside of his gate, and he never had a heart of compassion for him, not once. Jesus is making the point that one of these men is a believer. He's a poor man, but he's a believer. The other man's a rich man. He's not a believer. So we're just considering here, as Jesus begins this parable, a rich man and a poor man in this life. Now, Jesus takes us to now after this life. And this is where he's going to bring our focus. Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Two radically different lives here in this life, two radically different lives in the life to come. First obvious point Jesus would have us receive from this parable is this. There is an afterlife. There is life to be lived after physical death here. And that is the life that truly matters. This life is important, but the one to the come, that's the one that ultimately matters. We're here for just a few brief years compared to all of eternity that we're going to live somewhere. In fact, one writer called this pre-life, what we're living right now. He said, let's start thinking of this little puff of time, the next 80 or so years as what it is, the pre-life. This is pre-life. Real life is to come. That's where we're going to be forever and ever. And when you think about what's coming next, don't think about, hey, it's going to be like a grand high school reunion. And when I get to what's coming next, all we're going to do forever is just look back to these few years here and say, wasn't that something? Do you remember that? Well, there'll be some of that, I'm sure, because this life matters. So many wonderful things is all we know right now at the moment. But there's life to be lived coming up. You've got eternity, and it's not all looking backward. If you're among the believers in Jesus, you've got worship, and you've got, you've got excitement forever and ever, and new things to come in Christ. And so this is, I like that. This is a pre-life we're in right now. It's life. It matters. It matters greatly. Oh, but oh, the real is to come. Jesus spoke so much about eternal life. Here's one beautiful example. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he asked, do you believe this? So two men knew each other or of each other in this life. Now they're living a very conscious life away from here. Notice with me now, there are only two destinations. There most certainly is life after physical death. We see that clearly. And there are only two destinations for people once they die. First is heaven. And Jesus describes heaven here by the, by the phrase here at Abraham's side. Some translations will say at Abraham's bosom, you know, close to him. Why, why would Jesus refer to heaven that way in this instance? Well, because Abraham was kind of a prototype of belief. Remember back in the book of Genesis, you have Abraham believing God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so to be where Abraham is, is to be where the believers are. And so if you are among the believers in Jesus, uh, you will anticipate being in heaven. And notice here, Jesus describes it a place where you are comforted there. How beautiful. And that's all he says about it right here. Because his emphasis is going to be on the alternative to that here. But, but you do want to pause here a moment and think, isn't it true that for the believer in Christ whose sins have been forgiven, they've received the free gift of eternal life. They are in store for comfort forever. Don't you love how the scripture says that 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll no longer be any sorrow, no more crying, no more death. That's what we're destined for because of our Savior. But Jesus spends the bulk of the time here talking about what he calls here Hades. What is that? Sometimes we see that word Hades, especially in the Old Covenant, and we read that, and sometimes it just means the grave. It's kind of the abode of the dead, kind of a general term. But here in this context in the New Covenant, this word seems to be a synonym for hell here. And so just pause here and let's remind ourselves, there's not just one destination after death. Most of your neighbors, most of your relatives have that idea that there's only one destination. Everybody's born, everybody lives, and everybody goes to heaven, right? That's how most people think. They act like it's, it's like a retirement plan. I live, I retire, I go to Florida. You think, no, I live, I die, I go to heaven. That's just what everybody does. And that's how people think that it goes, but that is not accurate. George Barna surveyed people and found that nearly two-thirds of Americans believe they are going to heaven. I bet it's even higher than that. Most people you talk to, you going to heaven when you die? You sure? Oh, yeah. Now, I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. And if there's a heaven, I'm pretty sure I'm going. That's how most people do. Listen to this. So two-thirds say they're going to heaven. Just one half of 1% expect to go to hell. Not even a percent. That's how many people think they're going to heaven. And this has been our experience. Pretty good. Pretty good people go. Unless I made the news for something really bad. I'm sure I'm among those people, but people underestimate the holiness of God and they overestimate their goodness. They don't know that the scripture has already said this about us all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They don't know that the scripture says the wages of sin is death. Even a second death we're about to read about in a moment. They don't know that the scriptures say that there's none righteous. No, not one. They don't understand that, that the scriptures say that only Jesus can save you that there's one savior who left heaven, lived a perfect life to give himself as a sacrifice on a cross, to die for your sins, to take your judgment for you, to be raised from the dead so that if you believe in him, you won't perish, but have eternal life. They don't know that. And so they're thinking, I think I can do this on my own. Nobody can do this on their own. So there is life after physical death. Jesus teaches us that. There are two destinations. Everybody does not go to heaven. And then the third point here is in what comes next, there's either comfort or there's agony. What's coming next is either comfort or agony. Look at verse 23 again. And in Hades, being in torment, you might want to underline that word. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Here it is. For I am in anguish in this flame. So hear that again. Anguish in this flame. Clearly, this is a conscious experience. So when someone dies, they don't just cease to exist. Oh, they're existing. They're, they're living. They're experiencing things. And here's an unbeliever who's experiencing life in flame. Here hell described as hot, described as a flame, agony, anguish, and yearning for a drop of water. This is the consistent description of hell throughout the New Testament. So how about an example? Revelation 20 verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
We read that and say, I kind of like that because that's telling me that Satan, who's done so much damage on this earth, he will one day be punished in hell forever and ever. Conscious torment forever. I kind of like that. Justice at last for the evil one. But it's not just Satan. Revelation 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Or Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so here Jesus brings up hell and heat, torment, all that. And we say, I don't, I don't really like talking about this. Maybe you're a guest here and you're thinking, I, I came to a Baptist church and I bet that guy is relishing every moment of talking about hell. No, not, not at all. None of us find this topic pleasant. It's very painful. It's, this is why I think so much of our lives, we don't let our minds go there to that reality. We sometimes just want to think, I think it maybe it'll work out for everybody. But that's not what the scripture teaches here. There are some people who react so, so vehemently against the idea of hell. They'll say, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that. Some people will say it like this. Oh, my God, my God would never do that. My God would never send somebody to hell. But why would you say that? Why would you have a belief that there's no justice? Why, why would you have a belief that God won't judge when he says he will judge? So many times we hear our fellow countrymen say things like, hey, nobody can judge me but God. And then they kind of go on in their life and they really think even God won't judge them. So you can't judge me and God won't judge me. Everything's going to work out for me. But that's a pretty audacious thing to say, isn't it? That's really arrogance on top of all of our other sins to say, God's not going to do what God clearly said over and over again that he will do. Nothing could be clearer in all the Bible. Think about it. Nothing could be clearer in all the Bible than God will judge. And that not everybody goes to heaven. That many people will indeed perish. This is what Jesus himself is teaching us right here. The Savior who gave his body and blood for you. Nobody's loved you more than Jesus. And he's telling you this. Listen, that's the love of God, isn't it? That he would put this in his word repeatedly as a warning for you. God's done everything necessary for you to avoid hell. Jesus came and lived that life, died that death for you, raised from the dead, making it clear you should trust him. Have a Bible telling you over and over again, trust in Jesus. Somebody's told you about trusting in Jesus. That's the love of God. And he lets you know, for the person who does not believe, they do perish. But that's a loving warning that you not perish, that you would believe and be saved. Are any of you offended when you walk down the street and you see an electrical box maybe on the side of the road and it has a sticker on it with a lightning bolt and it says danger? Anybody offended by that? I'm never offended by that. I think somebody's cautioning me. If I go open that box, start fiddling with the wires, probably not going to survive that. Somebody cared enough. There's some kind of code that tells, tells them to put that sticker on there so knuckleheads like me won't hurt myself. Or you get some electrical appliance and if you ever read the directions, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. You get a new microwave and there's this whole list of warnings like, don't use this in the bathtub. You're like, oh, I might be a little offended by that one. Like, did you think I would microwave in the bathtub? But, but not really offended. You're like, they've required to give these types of warnings. A warning is a loving thing to do. And here's a loving God telling you, listen, I've provided the savior for you. There's no lack of loving God. Here's your savior. Jesus came, paid a high price. We just celebrated at the Lord's table. But if you don't believe, 
then you will perish. And it doesn't mean you'll cease to exist. You'll, you'll be in torment forever and ever. And so here's a God who's holy, who will judge, but he's so loving. And the one who is the judge, he is the savior. And he wants to save you today. Also, Jesus makes clear with this parable, this very vivid parable, that our eternal destinations, once we leave this earth, those destinations are eternal and they are fixed. So the rich man here asked something. He said, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to cool off my tongue. Remember that? So it's, there's something condescending even in that in the rich man. I'm going to ask the poor guy that I never helped, dispatch him over here to cool me off. There's some arrogance there in him. And of course, Abraham says, that, that's not going to happen. That cannot happen. There's no leaving here to go to you. And there's no leaving where you are to go anywhere else. Notice here, he says, there is a great chasm fixed. There's no crossing back and forth. There are no transfers. Our Catholic friends are not correct. There's no purgatory. You're not there for a time to pay for some of your sins. That's just not the gospel. Jesus paid it all on the cross. Our trust is in Jesus, not Jesus plus, all right, I'll go pay for some of my sins. That is, there's no scriptural support whatsoever for the idea of purgatory. You'll, you'll be in one of two eternal destinations and they are fixed. No one gets out of hell on good behavior. It's eternally fixed. And I think that's part of the sorrow of hell. The physical discomfort that we have described over and over again, I believe is literal. And then there's that regret forever. Especially think about somebody who grows up in a church, you've heard the gospel your whole life and a person goes, but, I, but I'm not gonna trust Jesus. I'm not gonna follow Jesus. That person for all eternity is hounded by their own internal regrets. Why did I not humble myself and trust in Jesus? What was I thinking? And they're gonna have that remorse for 10,000 years, another 10,000 years, another 14 million years and on and on and on. Why did I not humble myself and receive forgiveness that was offered to me, especially the one who's heard it and heard it and heard it throughout their lives? There's a great chasm fixed. A lot of great bridges have been built in human history, impressive things, but there's no bridge between heaven and hell. There's no moving back and forth. Then there's other moment here where when the man realizes, okay, well, so, uh, so Lazarus can't come here to me. What if you let Lazarus out of heaven that he can go warn my brothers? At last, there's some compassion in this rich man. But Abraham says, that's not going to happen either. People aren't leaving heaven to carry messages back to the earth. Right, let's just pause there a second. You know that's true, right? A lot of people say weird things on social media. A lot of people say weird things at funerals. Somebody dies and they think, well, now I got somebody helping me up in heaven now. My loved one's watching over me. That is not true. They don't become gods. They don't become angels. You have a God who looks out for you from heaven and a Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit who will be with you. Your loved ones, if they're believers in Jesus, they're preoccupied worshiping and having a great time in this life that they're now living. And if they didn't know Jesus, they certainly are not experiencing anything where they can be of help to you. So evangelism is not done by people leaving heaven because that can't happen. Who does evangelism? The living believers. That's what you and I do. This is the time. If you have somebody in your life you're concerned about, they're not believing, you're going to use patience and tact and love, but you're going to share the gospel. Now, this is your opportunity. You won't have an opportunity and nobody can leave heaven for this. You share the gospel now. But Abraham explains here, listen, even if somebody did come from the dead, they won't believe it. Even that statement foreshadowing Jesus, who's going to die and be raised. And there'll be many who hear that gospel 
And he'll still say, not going to believe it. Here again, the text, verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to him from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, this is key. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham says here, information is not the problem. They have information. They have Moses and the prophets and Moses and the prophets point to the savior, Jesus. In fact, those who are gonna read this parable soon will already have Jesus who would have died and then be raised. And like us, we're now reading this after the fact. We know, well, we know the one who was raised from the dead. The information is there. Here's a statement about the hardness of the human heart where unbelievers don't want to believe in many cases. I desire not to see. I see what the scriptures are saying, but I don't want that to be true. And Jesus said people would be that way. John chapter three, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Here's another point from this parable that your material wealth will be of no help to you in the life to come. Some people who have a lot of means are blinded by their financial success and their ease. And they think, I don't have any needs. Poor people have needs. I don't have any needs. Some people might say, and it can blind them to their need for a savior now. Such was the case with this rich man. But a person who's poor sometimes has a better vantage point to understand that, you know, I'm having trouble now. I need God's help now. And I'm certainly going to need God's help if I'm going to have any chance of being in heaven. But here we're told there's going to be a great reversal. Some of those who are poor, but are believers, they are going to be fabulously rich forever. And some who are fabulously rich now and their unbelief will be in poverty forever. And so Luke repeatedly warns us about the dangers that face the rich. Not that rich people can't be saved, but they need a savior and they have a hard time seeing it. Remember this passage? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The idea is it's impossible for anybody to go to heaven. We need a savior to rescue us, but there's a particular challenge and temptation for the rich to not see their true need here. And then this, your faith now in this life really impacts your eternal future. That's what we're seeing. Your faith during the here and now will determine which of those two destinations you're going to go to when you die. We're seeing this. It's infinitely better to be a poor believer in Jesus than a rich unbeliever. You need Jesus. First Peter 1.7 speaks of this. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in peace and praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Turns out gold is perishable, but your faith in Jesus is imperishable, greater worth than anything else. And so this morning, it's true for you as well. A lack of information is not the problem. Maybe when you came in, it was a problem. You had not heard the gospel. But today, once again, for some of you, you've heard the gospel. Some for the first time, you're hearing that good news again. Can I remind you of the gospel? This is what you need to respond to, that Jesus came to earth, lived perfectly on a mission to save you. Jesus died on a cross for your sins, taking 
the judgment of God for your sins. He took it upon himself. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. Here's your move. Now repent, which means turn from whatever you've been believing and following. Turn from that and now turn to Jesus. Put 100% of your faith in Jesus, his death, his resurrection for you. If you'll do that, then you have your destiny now, eternal comfort in heaven. If you turn away from that, the loving warning is, then you'll be in this place described as torment. And of course, the Lord has brought you here. The Lord has you watching online that you might turn and trust in Jesus, not perish one day, but be saved. This helps us understand the cross, doesn't it? You think, why the horrors of the cross? Jesus died and experienced the horrors of the cross so that you would not experience the horrors of hell. That's how much he loves you. He wants you with him. So today, would you? Would you trust in Jesus? In fact, here's a wonderful moment right now for you to ask Jesus to save you, to be the new Lord of your life. Let's pray together.